Today we're going to be looking at the letters to the Corinthians. That is, we're going to be covering a lot of the background information for both letters. We're going to look at the city of Corinth. We're going to look at the church. When was the church founded? Who founded the church? What was the environment like for that church? All that is going to be relevant to both letters. And then we're going to look at the context of how he wrote these letters, when he wrote them, and the circumstances. At the end, hopefully I'll get to it, we'll get into the purpose of 1 Corinthians, and that'll be a kind of a basic walk through the book of 1 Corinthians, so you get an idea of what it is. Next week, we'll pick up with 2 Corinthians, do the same thing, because we'll already covered all the background information. And then we'll do uh, interpretive challenges next week as well. All right? All right, well, let's get started. The easiest part of the letter to the Corinthians, the author. Who wrote 1 Corinthians? Paul. 1 Corinthians 1.1. 1, 1. Paul, called as an apostle of Christ by the will of God. Who wrote 2 Corinthians? Paul. Paul. 2 Corinthians 1.1. 1, 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. There's really no debate there. And you don't find people denying or trying to refute Paul's authorship until like the 1800s. 1800 years of church history, nobody disputed Paul's authorship of this book until some liberal theologian in the 1800s thought it would be a good idea to call him into question. So that's why I'm not going to spend a whole, a whole lot of time on the authorship. The book says who it was written by, and there's really no reason to debate it. So Paul wrote both letters. And he wrote these letters to a church in, a city, in the city of Corinth. And to understand these letters, we need to understand something about the city of Corinth. What do we know about this city? Well, archaeological discoveries reveal that this was probably one of the first locations within Greece that was inhabited. When people started moving into the area of Greece, they moved to this area we now call Corinth. And one of the reasons they moved there was because of a geological feature that's in Corinth. There's a really big rock there. And it has a cool name, the Acrocorinthus. It goes 1,800 feet into the air. The top of it provides a, a mile and a half square of space for a town. And the original Corinthian city was in, was stationed up here. You can see the little roads, and there was a fortress. There was also a temple to the goddess Aphrodite. It's easy to see why they would pick this spot. That would be a lot easier to defend than, you know, sitting over here on the plane. It would be really hard to attack that little city. Homer mentioned the city of uh, Corinth. And he described it as wealthy Corinth. It was rivaled in its wealth by other cities like Thebes, Sparta, and their longtime adversary, Athens. And we're talking before the time of Christ here. And it would receive a boost in its prominence by Philip of Macedon. Anybody, that name sound familiar to anybody? Philip of Macedon. He was also the guy who built the city of Philippi. Philippi was named after him. Philip of Macedon was the father of another guy you've heard of, Alexander the Great. And in 338, Philip of Macedon made Corinth his capital city to rule that area. And he formed a Hellenistic League, and this was his capital city. Now, Philip of Macedon was a Macedonian. Corinth is in Greece. Corinth is over here. Macedon is up here. The Greeks weren't real happy about having a Macedonian ruling over them. 
And they didn't like the fact that Philip was ruling them. So they decided to go find some powerful allies who would help liberate them from the Macedonian rule. Who do you think they went to? Any ideas? This is about 145 BC. Who was coming to who was really powerful at that point? Rome. The Greeks go and form an alliance with Rome, and they ask Rome to come in and help liberate them from the Macedonians. And the Romans are like, you know what? We're really not interested in conquest. We just want to sit here and be... Okay, no, they didn't do that. <laughs> 146 BC, the Romans show up, and they conquer the city of Corinth. They kick out the Macedonians, and then they leave it to the Greeks and say, you guys just rule yourselves. No, they said, now you're a Roman province but they completely destroy the city of Corinth they obliterate the city and it becomes just a mass of rubble and nobody actually lives there that's around 146 BC a hundred years later Julius Caesar recognizes Corinth as being a useful little city and he rebuilds a city as a Roman province a Roman colony and he sends a whole bunch of veterans from Rome to Corinth and they repopulate the city of Corinth and it becomes a primarily Roman city. There are Roman citizens living there. There are people loyal to Rome. Their primary language is Latin. This becomes a Roman city. By the time Paul visits the city of Corinth, it's a thriving metropolis. And it's a thriving metropolis mainly because it is the center and hub of commerce for the region. I want to show you, if you notice... You've got this little isthmus down here. Let me... There's Corinth. You've got an ocean here and an ocean there. Give you another view. So you've got the Corinthian Gulf. You've got the Saronic Gulf. There's the Acrocorinthus. Corinth controls not one, not two, but three seaports. The first seaport is here, where the modern-day... Corinth is located. If you go on Google Maps and search Corinth, that's where the seaport is. The second seaport is there. You'll remember that from Rome, our discussion on Romans. Paul was in Corinthian. He was in Corinth and he left and his fellows went here to sail out to uh, Ephesus. Paul went north to Macedonia. And then there's one more port, Port Sconus. That is still an active port today. I think it's titled, I don't remember the name of it, it's a, it's a Greek name, but it's still an active port. All three of these are active ports today. And it's that last port that becomes really important. That's the port today. I'll zoom in. Notice there's a canal there now. This was the hub for the east and west. If you wanted to get your goods from here to here, the only way to do it was to go all the way around. That's a 200 mile trek through some pretty rough waters. That's expensive and it's dangerous. And so they wanted to find a way that they can get their goods from one side to the other without having to make that long trek. And the Corinthians came up with a way to do it. They called it a diolis. 
And basically what it was, was a rail system that they could take small boats from here, transport them the four miles across the isthmus, and put them back in the water. Large boats, they could unload the cargo, put the cargo on the railway, and push that across the four miles, and then put it back on a ship. And we actually have archaeological evidence of this. It's the Diolis. And how would it work? I would imagine they would have, that it was a wooden trolley system. But the smaller boats, they would put the boats on the trolley and push it or pull it. Yeah. And you have the remains of that rail system there. And it would go the four miles across the isthmus. This was a wonderful opportunity for Corinth because this meant sailors would stop in, they would bring their business in, they would bring their cargo in, they'd pay for the use of this. Corinth became the central hub. Eventually, Nero in 66 AD realized that instead of having this rail system, it would be better just to have a canal. If you dig a canal, you can just move the ship across and it's easy. And in 66 AD, he tried to do it. He actually used 6,000 Jews that he had captured in war to start the work. And then he eventually abandoned that project. Now, there is a canal there today. That canal was built in the late 1800s. It was finished in 1893. But it comes from this. And it was the commerce that brought so many people to Corinth. Corinth is like every other seaport in the world. It's got a whole bunch of people from all over the place. It was a Roman city that hosted people from every nationality and every walk of life. By the time Paul arrives in the 50, 50, around 50 AD, Corinth is a city of 600 to 700,000 people. It's a good-sized city. It had both Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, free and slave. In fact, 70... 60 to 70% of the population of Corinth was slaves. And like most cities today that have a whole bunch of travelers, sin was no, um, no stranger to sin. You might say uh, Corinth was the sin city of the ancient world. What happens in Vegas stays on YouTube. But what, <laughs> but what happens in Corinth stays in Scripture. Corinth was busy, and it was um, corrupt. Uh, one writer said this, At night its streets were hideous with the brawls and lewd songs of drunken revelry. In the daytime its market squares swarmed with Jewish peddlers, foreign traders, sailors, soldiers, athletes in training, boxers, wrestlers, charioteers, racing men, betting men, courtesans, slaves, idlers, and parasites of every description, a veritable pandemonium. It sounds like some modern-day American cities, right? Yeah. Corinth was a city filled with every kind of lewd vice that you can imagine, and it became notoriously immoral. Notoriously immoral. The Greek plays, in Greek plays, the Corinthian was presented always as a drunkard. Fornication and sexual vice was commonplace in Corinth, so much so that they actually changed the name Corinth and turned it into a verb. Here's the verb. Corinthiadzo. There's Corinth. And they added iadzo to the end of it to make it a verb. 
Now, this is not my definition. This is somebody else's definition. The Braille Dictionary of Ancient Greek says Corinthiadzo means this, to live in a Corinthian fashion, to live as a prostitute or pimp. They changed the name into a verb to describe their, that kind of lifestyle. Now, there is some debate here. Is this talking about the Corinth that was before the Romans sacked it, or is this talking about the Corinth in Paul's day? I would argue that I would argue it's a little bit of both. When you're when you're talking about the Corinth before the Romans sacked it, you're just talking about degrees of immorality. But by the time Paul gets there, it's still a place of sin. The Temple of Aphrodite, which was actually on the Acrocorinthus, it was on that big rock structure, hosted more than one thousand female prostitutes. And those prostitutes provided their services to temple visitors at no charge. There were other temples in the city for the Greek gods of Athena, Apollo, Poseidon, Hermes, and even a temple for all the gods. So if you just couldn't decide which one you wanted, just go to that one. There was also temples in the city for the Egyptian gods of Isis and Serapis. Another writer. East and West mingled their dregs of foulness in the new Gomorrah of classic culture. And the orgies of the Pantheon goddess, that would be Aphrodite, were as notorious as those of Isis or as of Asherah. Edmund Hebert. Money was freely spent in Corinth for sinful pleasures by those who had come for a moral holiday. The flourishing of both Eastern and Western religions in Corinth furthered rather than hindered its moral corruption. The religions of that day just made the morality in Corinth worse. And the, those religions actually just harbored the sin rather than expel the sin. And if you want to understand a little bit of the depravity of Corinth, Romans 1. Remember what city was Romans, the book of Romans written in? Corinth. Romans 1. That description at the end of Romans 1, verse 28, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do things which are not proper, being filled with unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. That's a description of Corinth. And although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also they give hearty approval to those who practice them. Paul was looking at the very thing he was writing about when he wrote that. And this was the environment that surrounded the Corinthian church. This is where the Corinthian church was planted. We're not the first generation to live in a wicked and corrupt world. This was a church that was sinking into a sea of moral filth. So let's talk about the church itself. Unlike the Church of Rome, who founded the Church of Rome? Good answer. We don't know. Good answer. Yeah. We have no idea who founded the Church of Rome. We know it wasn't Peter. But we do know who founded the church at Corinth. It's actually very easy to find out who started the church at Corinth. And within the two letters that Paul writes to Corinth that we have remaining, 
Paul gives very clear statements that he was highly involved with the church at Corinth. He says that he was the first to preach the gospel to them. 2 Corinthians 10, 14. 2 Corinthians 10, 14 says, For we are not overextending ourselves as if we did not reach you, for we were the first to come even as far as you in the gospel of Christ. Remember we talked about the missionary journey, the first missionary journey didn't make it all the way over there. And he says, we were the first to get to you. He says he planted the seeds of faith, which pictures him as starting the ministry there in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 3, 6. I planted Apollos water, but God was causing me to grow. Apollos didn't start the church. Paul started it. He laid the foundation of that church. 1 Corinthians 3, 10. According to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds it. Yeah, someone else is building on the foundation that Paul began. He became their spiritual father, 1 Corinthians 4.15. For if you were to have countless tombs in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. He became their spiritual father. He even described the Corinthians as his work in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 9, 1 and 2. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. You are my work in the Lord. The Corinthians, he said, were a letter written on Paul's heart. Did someone do 2 Corinthians 3, 2 and 3? You are a letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Be manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Yeah. Written on our hearts that we care, that you are cared for by us. Paul shows an immense love for the Corinthian church. He went to them, he served them, he ministered to them, and he loves them dearly. When he went there, he decided, I'm not going to charge them, I'm not going to ask them to support me. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 7, he says, Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself, so that you might be exalted, because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? We'll find out how he was able to do that. He showed a commitment, a commitment to the Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians 7, 3, he says, I do not speak to condemn you, for I have said before that you are in our hearts, to die together and to live together. Not only did he say, I'm willing to die with you, but he said, I love you. 2 Corinthians 11, 11, why? Because I do not love you. God knows that I do. 2 Corinthians 12, 15, I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? Over and over again, Paul expresses his deep affection for the church at Corinth. And his two letters here reveal that he was the one who planted the church. He was the one who ministered there first. He was their father, their spiritual father, their pastor. And we also have evidence outside of the two Corinthian letters. Go over to Acts 15. I'm going to give you some context here for how the church was planted. Anybody know what's happening in Acts 15? Jerusalem Council, yes. At the end of the Jerusalem Council, the council decides we're going to send a letter because the Gentile churches are asking, do we need to become Jews in order to be saved? And the council writes this letter, 22 through 29, and they essentially say, look, you don't need to become Jews to be saved. 
and they give the letter to Paul and Barnabas to take it back to Antioch. Acts 15, verse 30, So when they were sent away, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. When they, that would be the church at Antioch, had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Judas and Silas, also being prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. Paul and Barnabas delivered this, this letter, and it encourages the church at Antioch. We don't have to become Jews. They got the letter, and they said, you know what? Paul, Barnabas, you guys don't need to stick around. Verse 33, they were sent away by the brethren in peace. That is to say, they were not obligated to stay. But Paul and Barnabas had a different idea. Paul and Barnabas chose not to return to Jerusalem, but stayed in Antioch, teaching and preaching. Jump down to verse 35. But Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, teaching and preaching, with many others also the word of God. So they're in Antioch, they're ministering to the saints at Antioch, And Paul gets an idea, and his idea is, I want to go back to the churches that I founded on the first missionary journey. Remember in Acts 13, he goes on his first missionary journey, and he establishes churches? Verse 36, After some days Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord, and see how they are. I want to go back to all the churches that I formed, and I want to minister to them and make sure they're doing well. But before Paul could leave, he had to settle a little dispute. Anybody know what the dispute was? Mark. Mark. Barnabas wanted to take John Mark. Paul said, I don't like this idea. I don't like this idea because John Mark had abandoned us in Perga. That's in Acts 13, 13. We're not given details as to why Mark left. We just know that Mark left them and went back to Jerusalem. That was on the first missionary journey. So Paul said, look, I'm not taking Mark with me. You take Mark. Paul ended up taking Silas. That's in Acts 39 and 40. I don't think we need to read that, but it's there. Once they settle their dispute, they go in their separate directions. Paul heads north from Jerusalem. There's a map. Second missionary journey. Acts 15, 41. He was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So Jerusalem's down here, there's Antioch, and he goes north into Cilicia. Remember, Tarsus is his hometown. And the narrative in Acts on the second missionary journey begins in Acts 16. In Derby. Derby is right there. That's Acts 16.1. They continue their travels. Acts 16.6. They pass through the Phrygian and Galatian region, which is over here. Having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. The Holy Spirit says, look, you can come over here, but you're not preaching here. He gets to Troas, which Troas is way over here. And he has a vision. It's called the Macedonian vision. Acts 16, 9, a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And so Paul says, Look, I was coming here to edify these churches, but apparently God has a different plan for me. I'm going to Macedonia. Acts 16, 11, So putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace. Here's Troas, Samothrace, Neapolis. 
and Acts 16.12, from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And we are staying in the city for some days. And it is here that in Philippi that Paul sees his first European converts. Anybody remember who that is? Who knows the book of Acts really well? Or who's just looking at Acts 16 and 17? It's Lydia. Lydia, Acts 16, 14. Lydia comes to faith. We're going to speed up this walk through here. Acts 16, 16 through 21. Paul cures a demon-possessed girl. And this upsets the slave girl's owner because he's making some money off it. So they seize Paul and they make some accusations against him that he's throwing the whole town into confusion, which would have been a, a crime in Rome to disturb the Pax Romana. And Paul and Silas are imprisoned. Well, Paul starts a prison ministry. Acts 16, 22 through 39 is the story of their imprisonment and the conversion of the Philippian jailer. Acts 17, they leave Philippi to go to Thessalonica. Paul preaches to them in Thessalonica, and as usual, he receives less than a warm reception. He then leaves from there, Acts 17, 10 through 15, and he goes to Berea with the noble Bereans, and once again, the Jews are not happy with him, and they begin to stir up trouble in Berea, so he departs. But when he departs Berea, he leaves behind Silas and Timothy, and he goes down to Macedonia. Macedonia would be... I have that wrong. He goes to Greece. He goes to Greece, not Macedonia. He goes to... Uh, he goes to Athens, Acts uh, 17, 16. And in Athens, he preaches at the Areopagus. And once again, his message is not well received. Acts 17, 32. Now, when they had heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. But others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. Paul then departs Athens. Acts 18, 1. After these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth. And Paul would spend a considerable amount of time in Corinth. Actually, he spent more time in Corinth than any other church that he wrote a letter to. Acts 18, verse 11, and he settled there for a year and six months. He gets to Corinth, and they find two Jews in Corinth. Who are? Aquila and Priscilla. Why are Aquila and Priscilla in Corinth? We read about them in the book of Romans. What are they doing in Corinth? Yes, they were run out of the city of Rome by the emperor Claudius. Acts 18.2 describes that. Why is that important? It's important because it helps us date when Paul arrived in Corinth. He had to arrive just shortly after the expulsion of the Jews from Rome. They had to have enough time to get from Rome to Corinth and then meet Paul there. Paul... Uh, Claudius ejected the Jews from Rome in 49 A.D. They probably arrived in uh, Corinth somewhere around 50 A.D. Paul goes to Corinth for one reason. He went to Corinth only to avoid the trouble in Macedon. And if you read through Acts 18, it seems like Paul wanted to go back to Macedon. Like he's down in Corinth and he's just hanging out there until he can go back. He meets Priscilla and Aquila, their fellow tent makers. They begin lodging together, Acts 18.3. 
And while he's there, he says, look, I'm going to redeem the time. If I'm going to be here, I might as well make it worth my while. He goes to the synagogue and he starts teaching and preaching every Sabbath to the Jews and to the Greeks. But then something happens. Acts 18, verse 5. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. Timothy and Silas show up in Corinth. They left Macedon. And this indicates to Paul he can't go back to Macedon. That door is now closed. And this is the point that Paul likely writes 1 Corinthians. He hears back from Timothy and Silas and he writes the letter to 1 Corinthians, not 1 Corinthians, 1 Thessalonians. He writes back to the Thessalonians to give them some encouragement. But Timothy and Silas didn't show up in Corinth empty-handed. They came with a gift. Remember I said we read that Paul preached the gospel without charge to the Corinthians? How was he able to do that? 2 Corinthians 11, 8 and 9 describes what Timothy and Silas did when they got there. 2 Corinthians 11, 8 and 9, I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. And when I was present with you, when I was in Corinth and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came down from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. Timothy and Silas bring gifts from the Thessalonians to Paul, and that enables Paul to minister there in Corinth without being a burden on that church. And Paul responds to this as, okay, this is divine providence. I am now going to commit myself to the ministry here at Corinth. Verse, 18, uh, verse 5 of Acts 18 began devoting himself completely to the Word. As one person said, this is, he began an intensive, full-time ministry in Corinth. And he commits himself to the Corinthian church and building this church. Not everyone appreciated that, namely the Jews. Acts 18, verse 5, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. He's going to the synagogues. He's devoting all of his time trying to convince Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. And they turn around and they blaspheme Christ. And he said, you know what? I'm done with you guys. I'm not coming back to the synagogue. Where does he go? He goes to the Gentiles. But geographically, he goes next door. Acts 18, verse 7, Then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God whose house was next to the synagogue. He moves next door. And he starts rooming with Titius. Acts 18, verse 8 says Titius was a leader in the synagogue. He was a Jew. And Paul's ministry here was very effective. Acts 18a also says many Gentiles were coming to the faith. But the Jews, Jewish opposition to Paul must have been growing pretty intense because it got so bad that in Acts 18, verses 9 and 10, God comes to Paul and says to Paul in a night vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. 
So Paul says, okay, <laughs> I guess I don't have to worry about the Jews killing me here. I can just settle down and do ministry. Well, the Jews may not have been trying to kill him, but they did have plan B. And plan B was to have him censored by the government. You know, when all else fails, get the government to shut the guy down. Mm-hmm. Turns out they still practice that today. <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> right? Acts 18.12, the Jews bring Paul before the proconsul, Galio. The proconsul was a Roman governor that was set up there. Paul's appearance before Galio in Acts 18.12 gives us a decent time frame as to when Paul spent his year and a half in Corinth. Historical and archaeological evidence points to Galio being proconsul from July of 51 AD to July of 52 AD. And toward the end of Paul's time in Corinth, he goes and stands before Galio. Priscilla and Aquila arrive there in 49. These two dates give us a time frame somewhere between January 50 AD and the summer of 51 AD. Is that year and a half period that Paul was in Corinth. But Galio wasn't big on censoring Jews. He really didn't care about the Jewish religion or their disputes. Like most Romans, they could care less. And he had no intention of using Roman authority to stop Paul from preaching. So, (laughs) the... The Jews took their anger out on somebody else. Galio wouldn't give them what they wanted, so they decided to beat up Sosthenes. And the Bible actually says in Acts 18 that they beat him in front of Galio. Before before Galio. And Galio just sat there and watched. It's like he didn't care. The Jews beat Sosthenes in Acts 18.17. It's not made clear as to why they beat him. There's two possibilities. Uh, One, he was a leader in the Jewish... We're getting there. We're getting there. Um, He was there for some reason. We don't know why he's there. We do know he was a leader in in the Jews, of the Jews. Maybe he was the guy who formed the plan and said, let's go to the pro council and try to get Paul shut down. And when the plan failed... They took their aggression out on the leader and beat him up. That could be a possibility. But there is another possibility. 1 Corinthians 1.1 mentions Sosthenes. And it says, Sosthenes, our brother. Sosthenes was a Jewish convert who's there Maybe he heard that the Jews were going to go and try to get Paul shut down and he wanted to be there to witness it. And the Jews see him there and say, oh, you're one of those. We got you. So who's the they in, in Acts 18, 17, and they all seized That would be the Jews. The Jews seized him. And they beat him. Poor guy. So the gentleman next door to the synagogue, Precious Justice, uh-huh. he was also leader of the synagogue. So was he also converted? Christian? Yeah. yeah. Paul's ministry was effective. It's funny how they describe Phidias Justice as a worshiper of God. Yeah. Yeah, I would, have, I would imagine that a Jew would have a hard time letting Paul stay in his house unless he was, to some degree, agreeing with him. Well, this little uprising convinces Paul that he's probably overstayed his welcome. 
what was supposed to be a few days visit in Corinth turned into a year and a half of effective ministry. So Paul departs Corinth with Priscilla and Aquila, Acts 18.18, and they go to the port of Kincray, which is the port on the other side, and go to Ephesus, where Paul ministers. So they, they leave here and they go to Ephesus. Paul ministers there for a little while, and then he leaves Ephesus to go back he goes back to Antioch. And he leaves Priscilla and Aquila behind to minister there. So where in all this did Paul write 1 Corinthians? Paul leaves Corinth to complete his second missionary journey. He leaves Corinth, he goes to Ephesus, from Ephesus he goes back to um, Caesarea, ultimately to Antioch and back down to Jerusalem. This is the second missionary journey. There is evidence that Paul wrote letters to Corinth that are not preserved today. And this is where your chart will be helpful to you. Okay, I'm going to go through and explain this, but just understand, just work your way from the top down. And you'll, you'll, be, on, you'll be on track. Okay. Paul leaves at, uh, Corinth to complete his second missionary journey. And we have evidence that there were other letters written. The first letter we're going to call letter A. It was probably written somewhere around 55 AD. You'll notice Dr. Essex put a question mark on it. That's the second line right here. He put a question mark next to the date because the exact time is uncertain. But we do have part of the content of that letter. The content of that letter is preserved partially in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If you notice in 1 Corinthians 5, Starting in verse 9, he says, I wrote, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. Which letter is he talking about? This is 1 Corinthians. This is the first letter we have from him. So there has to be a letter before this one. And what did he write them about? Verse 10, not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of the world or with the covetous and swindlers, or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. You're living in Corinth. If I told you not to associate with the world, you'd have to go live in a cave somewhere. But actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Don't associate with immoral people. Paul knows where they're living. He knows the moral climate there. And that kind of behavior should not be in the church, and you should not be associated with it. That's what his first letter is talking about. And in verse 2, he actually blames their associating with them, uh, associating with immoral people. He blames their arrogance. Paul then receives a report from Corinth. Paul is has left Corinth and the report comes to him and tells him of some problems in the church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 11 says that there are factions in the church. Verse 12, 1 Corinthians 1 12 describes those factions. Some of you are saying, I am of Paul and I am of Apollos and I am of Cephas and I am of Christ. 
1 Corinthians 5, we just looked at it, it talks about the scandalous behavior of a man who has his father's wife. And this report also has questions. Questions from the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 7, he starts answering their questions. They wrote him a letter asking him questions. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 1. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, they write to him and they send this letter to him asking him questions. This report also came with encouragement. 1 Corinthians 16, 17, and 18, they encourage him. Let me read that because I think that's going to be important. I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have supplied what was lacking on your part, for they have refreshed my spirit in yours. Therefore, acknowledge such men. These men came from Corinth to Ephesus where Paul is, and they provide him this report of how the Corinthian church is doing. Well, the problems reported to Paul in that letter, in that report, caused Paul to write another letter. On your handout, letter B. Letter B is what we know as 1 Corinthians. And it was a letter sent from the city of Ephesus. How do we know it's from the city of Ephesus? 1 Corinthians 16 uh, verse 3, when I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me, but I will come to you after I go through Macedonia. Anybody recognize this? This is the third missionary journey. Remember we talked about in Romans? He had a gift. He was taking back to Jerusalem, and he was going to go and collect it from these churches. For I'm going through Macedonia, perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. For I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time if the Lord permits. Verse 8, but I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. This is Paul in Ephesus during his third missionary journey. There's the first leg of the first missionary journey. There's Ephesus. Here's Corinth where he wrote the book of Romans. He doesn't want to leave Ephesus. His ministry is going well. He's bearing fruit there. So who took the letter? We're really not sure. It seems that Timothy wouldn't be the guy. The most likely people to deliver 1 Corinthians back to the Corinthians would be the people who came and brought the report to Paul. They return back to Corinth. Paul himself actually goes back to Corinth sometime during his stay here in Ephesus. Where's Ephesus? I lost it. Right here. He sometime, at some point, goes to Corinth. That's on your chart as well. It's called the painful visit. It's not recorded in Scripture outside of that reference. It's the heartbreaking visit, the sorrowful visit. 2 Corinthians 2, he describes it that I would not come to you in sorrow again. Apparently some false teachers had arisen in Corinth. They're going to be a big subject in 2 Corinthians. And they started attacking Paul, and once again in the face of sin, the Corinthians just sat there and did nothing while these men attacked and slandered their pastor. So Paul returns back, and he has a sorrowful visit where these men keep attacking him. He ends up leaving, going back to Ephesus, and he writes a third letter. We'll call this letter C. It's also on your handout. 2 Corinthians 2, 3, and 9, for the sake of time, we're not going to read it. 2 Corinthians 7, 8, 
For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. He wrote a very strong rebuke to the Corinthians. And he rebuked them harshly, and it hurt. It hurt them. It hurt him a little bit. You know, it's kind of like spanking your kids. You don't like doing it, but you know it's for their good. And he rebuked them harshly. And that letter, that harsh letter, was sent in the hands of Titus. Paul is still in Ephesus. He's still right here. He hasn't left. He leaves Ephesus and he goes up to Troas. And he's expecting to find Timothy, sorry, not Timothy, Titus, in Troas. The only reason he left Ephesus was because he was concerned about the church in Corinth. He wanted to get to Corinth. Second, um, is that Second Corinthians? I think it's 2 Corinthians 2, 12 and 13 says Paul had no rest in his spirit. He gets to Troas and he's looking for Titus. He wants to know how the Corinthians are doing. And he's looking for Titus. He can't find Titus. So he leaves Troas and he goes to Macedonia. And there he finds Titus. And he gets some good news. 2 Corinthians 7 Verse 5, for even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Oh, my friend, I get to see my friend again. And not only does he get to see his friend again, verse 7, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort which he has, by the comfort which he was comforted in you, as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced. The harsh letter did his job. The Corinthian church repented. They started defending Paul. They started telling these false teachers to go away. And now he writes letter D. Also on your handout. Letter D is what we know as 2 Corinthians 5-7. through 7. That was written somewhere around 56 AD. In 2 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7, he talks about the punishment inflicted by the majority. This is the majority of the church rebuking the false teachers, dealing with the sin in the church. He leaves Macedonia and he arrives in Corinth on his third missionary journey, that's in Acts 20. We talked about that last week. That's where he wrote the book of Romans. All right, is that clear as mud? <laughs> that's a lot, isn't it? It's a lot of travel. It's a lot of travel. Mm -hmm. And he did that on the back of a camel. Oh. Don't complain about the Prius, okay? <laughs> <laughs> okay, hopefully, let's... Hopefully it was a double one. That way you could do one off. Yeah. I, I think this chart will help you to keep track of all the different letters. Does it, does it help? Because I know that's a lot. But that gives you the context of when Corinthians, these letters were written. That'll give you the dates. That'll give you everything you need to know about the city, everything you need to know about the church. Let's talk a little bit about the purpose of for sending 1 Corinthians. You have on your handout there, the first page, the purpose Paul applied Christian solutions to the spiritual problems at Corinth in his desire to see a holy church result. Paul's primary purpose in writing 1 Corinthians is to address problems in the church and help them grow in their holiness. If you look at the themes for 1 Corinthians, the call to holiness, it's a big part of Paul's letter. 
And in the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians, he focuses efforts on addressing the factions that are occurring in Corinth. If you'll go to 1 Corinthians 1, I think we can do this. It's like the little train that could. I think I can. Okay. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 11. For I've been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that's the people that travel to see him, that there are quarrels among you. He hears of divisions in the church. He mentions that again in chapter 11, verse 18. And according to verse 13, the divisions center on an understanding of the message that Paul was preaching. They were focusing on who was baptized by who. I've been baptized by Paul. You've been baptized by so-and-so. You've been baptized. And because I was baptized by Paul, I must be better than you. And Paul says in verse 14, man, I'm thankful I only baptized two of you. Verses 15 and 17, Paul clarifies that he preaches the wisdom of God and not the foolishness of man. Because the foolishness of man results in factions and divisions. In verse 27, he says, God chose the fools of the world. He chose the weak things of the world. And why did God choose the weak and the foolish of the world? Verse 29, so no one can boast. So no one can be arrogant. So they have no reason to exalt themselves over each other. Yeah, you may have been baptized by Paul, but you're still the drag of the world. And you're one drag trying to exalt yourself over another. Foolish. You have nothing to boast about. You can't even boast about your faith and union with Christ. Verse 30, one of my favorite verses. But by His doing, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And he says, look, the only reason you have factions is because you are proud and you are arrogant. And again, that's part of your themes. Uh, theme letter B, the pride of the Corinthians. Verse 31, the only thing you should boast about is Christ. And he continues that through chapter 4. Chapter 5, we looked at it briefly. Paul then addresses the immorality in the church. Specifically, the Corinthians' refusal to deal with this immoral man who has his father's wife. And Paul in verse 5 says he had decided to deliver that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That is, kick him out of the church, get rid of him so that he would repent and come back in faith. In verses 6 and 7 of chapter 5, he says, once again, the key issue here, the reason you're refusing to do church discipline is because you are proud and you are arrogant. And in your arrogance, you think that a little bit of sin in the church won't be a problem. That we can tolerate a little leaven. And Paul says, don't you realize a little leaven leavens the whole lump. You put a little bit of yeast in the dough, and it takes care of the whole loaf. And a little bit of sin in the church infects the whole church. Get rid of it. Verses 12 and 13, he says, You are called to judge in the church. To judge sin. And you are to judge this man as being sinful and to remove him from the body. And it's that topic of judging that he now carries into chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 1, they're saying to each other, they're, they're taking each other to court and suing each other before ungodly, unrighteous people, before unbelievers. 
rather than resolving the disputes within the church. And Paul makes an argument of the greater to the lesser. Christians are going to judge the world, chapter 6, verse 2. We're going to reign with Christ and judge the world, and you can't resolve a little petty dispute between yourselves? Christians are going to judge angels, and you take your brother to court over a few, sh- a few shillings or a few shekels or whatever, they, whatever currency they were using? Verse 5, is there, there, is there no one wise in your midst? Is there, are you not wise enough to settle these petty little disputes? To render judgments? Or do you need to go to the unrighteous to get their foolishness to determine it? Verse 7, wouldn't it be better just to be defrauded? Wouldn't it better be better to just admit that you're spiritually defeated and morally bankrupt? Instead of taking them to court, why don't you just forgive them? Instead of tearing apart your church, why not just forgive? That's what a Christian's supposed to do. Verse 8, but you act corruptly toward each other. You act like the unrighteous do. That you act like the very people you're going to seek judgment from. And in verse 9 and 10, he says, don't you realize that you're acting that way and that kind of behavior, those people will not inherit the kingdom of God? Verse 12 through 20, he returns back to the issue of sexual immorality. And that goes all the way through the end of chapter 6. And the rest of the book is answering questions. We are going to make it. Okay. (laughs) Chapter 7, he begins by answering questions. Questions on marriage. If you have questions on marriage, divorce, and remarriage, chapter 7 is a great section. It's fantastic. He answers questions on things sacrificed to idols, chapter 8 through 11.1. He answers questions on the public assembly of the church in chapter 11, 2 through 34, the Lord's table, order in the church. Chapter 12 through 14, he answers questions on the use of spiritual gifts and helps them understand what those are. The church at Corinth is the, act, is, is the exact opposite of the church in Rome. Church in Rome had no apostolic founding. The church in Corinth had more time with an apostle than any other church other than Jerusalem. The church in Rome was spiritually mature, so mature that Paul says, I don't need, I'm just reminding you of what you already know. The church at Corinth was immature and immoral. Rome was well taught, Corinth was ignorant, Rome was faithful and pure, Corinth was unfaithful and full of immorality. Exact opposites. All right, questions? Well, the, the, and was strong, how did the Catholic Church get started? Yeah, so the, the, what you know is Roman Catholicism didn't actually begin forming until around the 5th, 6th century. And it started kind of slow with the assertion of the primacy of the Bishop of Rome. And then they started building doctrine from there. And you don't see the Catholic Church really gain dominance until the medieval period. And it's just a slow progression. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Either they were, either they were slacking in their job, or they were just immature themselves. They were appointing elders. It's like you know, 
they established a church in Crete, the book of Titus, and he says, appoint elders. Well, they're all new converts. <laughs> they were all just converted. So, and give them, give them a little bit of a break. They didn't have this. They had the Old Testament. And so a lot of how the church was functioning, they were just learning. We have the benefit of we have 2,000 years of church history and we have a completed canon. And those poor guys are trying to shepherd a church and they don't have a clue. I don't know if there was a coordinated plan or a thought out plan, but I, I would say it's primarily the Corinthians who are allowing it to come in. So, all right. Any other questions? Yeah, and we, we still mess it up, man. All right, let's pray real quick. Father, we thank you so much for our time this morning. We thank you for the fellowship that we have and this opportunity to, to study your word, that we do have a completed canon. We have your word. We have all that you need to say to us. And we just ask that you would help us uh, as individuals and as a church to be more faithful uh, to your word, to be obedient in everything. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.